can this possibly be our one-year anniversary episode? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Well, here we are. I know. I can't believe it. Me either. This is our one-year anniversary, folks. We started one year ago today. Well, we started our pre-production pretty much a week before COVID hit. That's right. I came up to your cottage to sort out what we were doing, you know, do pre-production planning and stuff. I remember, and we took some publicity pictures up here that ended up on the website. But the next week I called to make plans for you to come back up, and I was told that your family said, you can't come back to my house. Right. They wanted me to be safe. I got it. I got it. But it was a, it was startling. Yeah, I know. I know. We had a big argument about it, but, you know, they won. So anyway. Yeah. Well, it, they should have won. It, it's been a lot of work. And, you know, producing this show, despite the distance and the technical hurdles we had to get over, all of that. Amen, brother. It's been I, harder on you than me because you're well, doing most of the techie stuff. Well, I learned a lot about audio editing, that's for sure. Boy, you sure did. Now you respect even more the people who've worked for you all these years when you've been a producer. You can say that again. I know. But we kept at it, again, mostly you. And we've, I think, really had some remarkable guests, and I'm, I'm really proud of the shows we produced. Me too. I think this year was, it's been great. And I look forward to many more. Okay. So, when we talked about what to do for our one-year anniversary show, I was glad when we came up with this idea. Right. So for our New Year's show, as in Happy New Year show, we did a recap of important ideas that our guests had had. That was a good show. Yes, it was. But we thought for the one-year anniversary of the podcast, maybe we would turn the focus inward a little and talk about our own ideas. So I have a couple I'd like to share with our guests. Good. Go for it. Oh, really? You want me to just go first? Well, yes, I do. Okay. Well, my first idea I am borrowing from my dear departed cousin, Dave Bodine, who had a lot of good ideas, and it has to do with our history and our future, and specifically our lives as being a bridge between the past and the future right now. Okay. So it begins with having what is often called a sense of history. The real point of reading and knowing about our history is to understand the struggles and tribulations that people have faced, as well as the triumphs and to appreciate the myriad sacrifices that were made in order for us to have the lives that we're living now. So all that was done. People survived plagues. They've survived famine, primitive medical practices. They burned witches alive. We had the Spanish Inquisition, wars, slavery, and the list goes on and on. And it's a pretty dispiriting catalog. But if all those people had not accomplished what they did, then none of us would be here now to be making podcasts and sharing them with the world on this miracle technology. I agree. So the first half of the story, our past, is that it's good to feel a sense of obligation to all those people who came before us and made our lives possible. Humility and gratitude. Correct. Humility and gratitude. We want to keep it going and improve on it. There's plenty of room for improvement. I know that. Now, the second piece of the story, the future, has to do with our children and what kind of a world we want to leave for them and for their children. 
And I think we're doing a terrible job in so many areas, and a lot of these are issues that our company, Chi, has taken up as causes, including climate change and income inequality that's out of control, and those are the two biggest issues. We're actually stealing resources from future generations in order to pay for the excesses in our own time. Not to mention the federal debt. Yeah, it's gross. So my little story here, my important idea, if you will, is that we should strive to see ourselves as a bridge between what was and what is yet to come. And we should strive to do the best we can to continue what was good, repair what was bad, and consider our obligations to our children and the kind of world we want to leave for them. This is super critical now when big technology and artificial intelligence are major disruptors. Taking a page from Yuval Noah Harari, who I respect greatly and follow, this is the best reason to learn history, not in order to predict the future, but to free yourself of the past and imagine alternative destinies. Of course, this is not total freedom. We cannot avoid being shaped by the past, but some freedom is better than none. And that's from his book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Which I which I loved and found very disquieting. Everyone should read it. And don't forget your old favorite, Jacques Barzin, also a historian of, of some merit, some note. Yep, he's one of my favorites. And this is a funny one from him, actually. A man who has both feet planted firmly in the air can safely be called a liberal, as opposed to the conservative who has both feet firmly planted in his mouth. <laughs> And political correctness... As in, as in yeah, foot and mouth, right? Yeah, yeah, foot and mouth. And right. political correctness does not legislate tolerance, it only organizes hatred. So that's pretty much what I wanted to contribute to this. So Steve, do you have a big idea you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I do. Okay. Every time I drive to your place, I drive through Newtown, Connecticut. All right. And I think about the horrible massacre of little children and teachers at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. And now you're talking about being a bridge to the future, future for the kids who survived that horrific event and who are left with that trauma for the rest of their lives. I know you'll remember this, but while you're talking about Newtown, Connecticut, I used to work there. In fact, for a number of years, I worked with some wonderful young people in their late teens, early 20s, many of whom went to that elementary school. These very well could have been the victims of that massacre, and it brings me closer to it because I still think of them. They were some of the most wonderful young people that you'd ever want to meet, filled with wonder and promise and, and all the things that youth brings. But I remember distinctly when that shooting took place, just staring at the television set with my mouth open. I was just thinking about all the people I used to I used to work with. So I don't even know, know how to talk about that even all, the, all these years later. It makes me want to speak out about gun violence. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about guns. Well, bring it. Okay. We all know the gun debate has been raging for the past 22 years since the Columbine High School Massacre which, by the way, was April 20th, 1999. So, another anniversary. Close to our anniversary. Yeah, not a very good one, is it? According to the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit group 
that catalogs gun violence in the U.S. 104 mass shootings have occurred in 29 states in the District of Columbia in the first three months of this year. Okay? The first three months of 2021. Gun Violence Archive defines a mass shooting as four or more people shot or killed in a single incident, not including the shooter. Shootings involving four victims now occur daily. But it is a peculiarly American problem, not shared with any major developed nation. For example, the U.S. gun death rate is nine times as high as Canada's and 29 times as high as Denmark's. You have to wonder why there's been no action on gun elimination or regulation in the U.S. until now. Everyone blames the NRA, but we know the NRA is nowhere near large enough or powerful enough to lock up the nation this way. The non-rationality of the situation indicates to me that there's a hidden, unconscious agenda that is never discussed. I've maintained in the past that we're living in a toxic culture. To my way of thinking, repeated mass shootings is a blatant symptom of that. Yep. The current gun debate, prompted by the most recent shootings in Colorado, Texas, Maryland, you name it, the whole debate revolves around, among other things, the issues of mental health and background checks for the individual gun owners. But what I question is the mental health of our society in general. I would like to add a cultural critic perspective that hasn't been adequately included in the usual press and punditry. Okay, I think we're the perfect guys to do that. Okay, well, (laughs) I don't know about perfect, but we're one of them anyway. We'll find out. We'll find out. I love this quote. In a TV interview, U.S. Senator Bill Nelson from Florida identified himself as a hunter and said, an AR-15 is not for hunting, it's for killing. You might remember the AR-15 is an assault-style rifle that was used in the Parkland School shooting. Now, I hope the listener hears the irony in Senator Nelson's statement, as far as I know, hunting is killing. Yeah, that's a funny distinction to make. We talk a lot on the... Right. It is. It's bizarre. Now, we talk a lot about Ernest Becker, terror management theory, current social psychologists, and what they maintain, the the social psychologists that we know, they maintain that killing living things helps one compensate for one's own death anxiety and for what is called nobodiness. On the one hand, it's an ancient antidote for the dread associated with one's own mortality, killing an animal especially a large, dangerous animal, and killing another human, an even more powerful act, gives one symbolic immortality. And this is a theme that's explored by Don DeLillo in his 1985 novel, White Noise. Killing momentarily transfers the terror of one's own annihilation onto another creature, giving the killer transitory power over life and death. At the same time, this power imparts a sense of worthiness of deserving more life because of the right and ability to take life away. The power to kill instantaneously, as guns provide, also has the benefit of compensating for the discomfort of being 
nobody important, i.e., nobodiness, a nagging uneasiness that gnaws at one's self-esteem, which is a potent defense against death anxiety. Killing satisfies two unconscious defenses against the dread of one's inevitable death. Guns. All guns. From AK-47s to hunting rifles to tiny derringers are killing machines. There are euphemisms such as gun enthusiast to describe a pro-gun individual, someone defending the right to own a killing machine. I think perhaps someone with a gun fetish would be a more accurate description. I'm not using the term fetish in the Freudian sexual sense, although many comparisons have been made between penises and guns and ejaculation, life-giving, and shooting, death-giving. For example, in the movie Full Metal Jacket, the drill sergeant has the new recruits march up and down with their rifles on their shoulders while holding their genitals with their other hand as they chant, This is my rifle, this is my gun, this is for fighting, and this is for fun. And guns and male genitals are often linked consciously and unconsciously, as in Happiness is a Warm Gun by the Beatles, right? But I'm using the word fetish to describe an inanimate object worshipped for its supposed magical powers, such as an amulet or a talisman that brings good luck. A gun fetish is a belief in the power of a gun to magically protect one from harm. Somehow the defenders of guns have neatly turned the killing purpose of a gun into a mystical power to ward off danger from others with guns. When you think about it, the idea of a defensive weapon is very strange. Arming ordinary civilians in the name of defense against tragedy is magical thinking taken to an extreme. If you want to equip students with defensive gear, why not issue them helmets and body armor the way we do our military? If schools are to be potential war zones where killers can roam at will, perhaps we should dress our children accordingly. If one is seeking safety in one's home, well, perhaps good locks, reinforced glass, a neighborhood watch, a loud dog, burglar alarms would provide real safety not your very own killing machine. Another way to look at it, as cultural critic Kirby Farrell might say, is to see a gun as a prosthetic device. A prosthetic is an artificial device that replaces a missing body part. In this case, the part is missing because one wants to have it, not because it was lost or taken. Dr. Farrell describes a car as a prosthetic device, that imparts to an individual superhuman abilities to travel long distances at great speeds. A gun also imparts the superhuman ability to instantly kill another person in the blink of an eye. Superhuman powers are an effective way to ward off nobodiness. Advocates argue that guns in the home both deter crime and thwart it. But according to the Los Angeles Times analysis of data and studies on the subject in 2015, 
Guns do neither. In terms of deterrence, the Times reported that states with higher levels of household gun ownership have higher levels of firearm crime and do not have lower levels of other types of crime. As for thwarting crime, gun advocates claim that guns are necessary for self-defense. But about 60% of the people in the U.S. population live in homes without guns. There's no evidence that the inhabitants of the, the homes are at greater risk of being robbed or that they're going to be injured or killed by criminals compared with citizens in homes with guns. Instead, the evidence is overwhelming that a gun in the home increases the likelihood not only that a household member will be shot accidentally, but also that someone in the home will die in a suicide or homicide. It's a doubled risk for homicide and a tripled risk for suicide. Numerous studies have found that self-defensive gun use to prevent or combat violence is rare. The evidence also indicates that the safest, most effective response to a gun threat is to run away. Standing your ground can and does get people hurt. Then there's the canard that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have a good guy with a gun. This is a dangerous hero fantasy. As the Parkland school shooting demonstrated, the professional police officers took cover outside the school until the shooting stopped, which was the rational thing to do. Arming teachers, arming moviegoers and the like, opens the very real possibility of more guns causing more shooting, resulting in more deaths. Fatal crossfire is more likely than armed good guy heroics. The idea that regulating AR-15s will do something to reduce gun violence is nonsensical. A 2017 study from Harvard and Northeastern, an analysis of the 2015 National Firearms Survey, found that the majority of new guns acquired over the past 20 years are handguns, not assault weapons. Handguns now account for 40% of total civilian-owned firearms in the U.S. A lot of people might ask, what about hunting? Okay, let's talk about hunters. There are 16.9 million hunters in the United States, which is about 6% of the population over age 16. 91% are male. Most use rifles, shotguns, and a few handguns for hunting, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2013. In 2012, hunters each averaged 18 days per year hunting, what some people would call a hobby. 35% of hunters, which is, what, 2% of the population, say they hunt primarily to obtain meat. The others cite recreation, socializing, being in nature, and a tiny minority to collect trophies. I don't know about you, but I can enjoy recreation, socializing, and being in nature without a killing machine. Yeah, or putting animals' heads on my walls. Or <laughs> putting yes, animal heads, which is a really bizarre custom. It's a curious thing, isn't it? I always thought it was. Isn't it? It's gross. The argument that hunters are a major factor in conservation is equally misleading. 
bird watchers, hikers, campers, people who fish, far outnumber hunters and contribute far more to conservation efforts. In any event, hunting as a reason for gun proliferation is a red herring. According to CNS News, U.S. gun owners outnumber hunters five to one. The small arms survey stated that U.S. civilians alone account for 393 million guns. That's about 46% of the worldwide total of civilian-held firearms. We have 4% of the population with 46% of the guns. That's a lot. And this amounts to, yeah, this amounts to 120.5 firearms for every 100 residents. We have more guns than people. About 40% of Americans say they or someone in their household owns a gun, and 22% of individuals, about 72 million people, report owning a gun, according to surveys from Pew and from Harvard and Northeastern. But only 3% of Americans own half the country's 393 million guns. They're like gun hoarders. So some guys have a real lot of guns. A lot of guns. Yes. Some people have 15 guns. That's, you know. Wow. They call them collectors. Okay. So we're talking about a minority of Americans who own guns, mostly for protection, but who aren't protected by them, and an even smaller percentage that hunt as a hobby on a regular basis. The tail is wagging the dog on this issue. Okay. The tail is wagging the dog. I get that. But now people are going to say... What about the Second Amendment? A lot of people insist on their right to own a gun. Good. Let's address the Second Amendment. Let's not confuse the widespread American gun fetish with constitutional rights. Gun debates are always framed in terms of the Second Amendment and defenders of the rights it provides. Here's what the Second Amendment says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Enacted in 1791, this is obviously an amendment to protect the ancient system of state militias, not a wholesale gun owner amendment, as we have been led to believe. Modern militias continue today primarily as the National Guard, who have their own weapons and do not require American volunteers to provide their muskets in case of a slave uprising or Indian attack. The other group of modern-day militia organizations in the United States, designated as unorganized militias, are private organizations that include paramilitary or similar elements. They have about 100,000 members with about 40,000 active. The new militia movement is a relatively new right-wing extremist movement consisting of armed paramilitary groups, both formal and informal, with an anti-government, conspiracy-oriented ideology. Militia groups began to form not long after the, the deadly standoff at Waco, Texas in 1993. They're characterized by elaborate conspiracy theories and fascination with weaponry and paramilitary organization. Probably the best-known Unorganized militia group is the Oath Keepers. They're an anti government, pro gun group made up mostly of ex military and law enforcement personnel. You might remember a number of them have been charged in the Capitol breach January 6th. Yes. 
you know, the Oath Keepers. They read Soldier of Fortune magazine. <laughs> yes, 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 they do. Another militia that's becoming better known since the January 6th insurrection is the Three Percenters. I don't know if you heard of them. I did not. Three Percenter is a reference to the purported 3% of the American colonial population that rose up to fight the British army in the revolution. Okay. No idea if that's accurate, you know, but that's why they call themselves the three percenters. In nearly every state, the National Guard outnumbers unorganized militias 10 to 1. Now, one might argue that the amateur militias playing soldier with their camo outfits and military-style guns running around in outfits purchased at Dick's Sporting Goods, pretending to do battle with imaginary bad guys and seeing themselves as a heroic bulwark against an autocratic government, one that is armed with tanks, fighter planes, and drones, that all this must outstrip similar video games. It's real-life video games. But their pastime is hardly a reason for Americans to have 400 million guns. The idea that gun ownership has to do with individual freedom has an appeal to gun owners, and the rights of the individual must always be carefully weighed against the common good. In this case, thousands of people being shot to death and crippled for life every year because a minority of Americans have a gun fetish, is idiotic, if not insane. The Parkland kids who experienced the terror of a mass shooting firsthand seem to agree. Okay. A majority of Americans seem to think background checks are the answer. What do you think about that, Steve? Are background checks and mental health screenings a good idea? Are they enough? Yeah, we talked about this last episode. Background checks and mental health screenings are a really bad idea, as if we can guarantee all of the gun owners as sane and law-abiding. Are we really going to attempt background checks and screenings of 70 to 90 million people? As we asked last episode when we talked to Jerry Piven, who is going to define sanity and fitness to own guns? Who is going to enforce it? It's Orwellian on many levels. Boy, that's for sure. I mean, it's just, it's it's mind-boggling. The mental health aspect of the debate ignores the viewpoint of many psychologists who tell us that all humans have the potential for violence. The temporary insanity defense in a criminal prosecution claims that the accused was briefly insane at the time a crime was committed and therefore was incapable of knowing the nature of the criminal act. Temporary insanity is often claimed as a defense, whether or not the accused is mentally stable at the time of the trial or not. If everyone is capable of violence, and if people with no apparent instability can become temporarily insane and commit a crime, how in the world do gun advocates intend to test for and screen the entire population for potential gun violence. We know the human mind often works 
by unconsciously making a choice, often for reasons not consciously known to the individual. Then, the mind consciously finds reasons to support and justify the unconscious choice. I think people would be upset if they knew how often that actually happens. Well, true. But that's something that we have explored yep. with experts. I know. That's the way the mind works. The gun fetishists, consciously or unconsciously, use the Second Amendment as a rational reason, stretched, as it seems, to defend their wanting guns. They extol the virtues of hunting for a small minority, mostly engaged in a hobby, and use arguments about protection and thwarting crime as reasons for their real agenda, which is the purchase and possession of killing machines for psychological needs. They shift the argument from guns to background checks and loopholes in laws. Let's concern ourselves less with the insanity of mass shooters and focus on the insanity baked into our toxic culture. The Second Amendment is not the issue. Hunting is not the issue. Self-protection is not the issue. The issue is the toxic American culture that relies on guns to unconsciously defend against death anxiety. Gun advocates are as adamant about keeping their magical gun fetishes as churchgoers are about their immortal souls. And so the gun debate will go around in circles intensely and indefinitely. It's an irrational debate masked in barely relevant arguments. Do you have an idea what might be the solution? In my humble opinion, the solution is to repeal the Second Amendment and get rid of all the guns. And if you've got a better idea, or dear listener, if you would like to send us an email and give us a better idea, one that prevents thousands of people from being shot to death every year, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I'd love to hear it too. So do you think people are going to go along with that? Well, that's not the point. You know, what is possible? The point is, what's the right and best thing to do? And I can't come up with a better idea. Okay. I get it. You don't sound convinced. Well, it's a, it's a <laughs> utopian notion. I, my brain immediately goes to uh, how you're going to accomplish that. And mm -hmm. I don't want there to start being a lot of killing. Right. Because that's usually what happens with utopian ideas once they get out on the, on the highway. We've already got thousands of people being shot to death. Well, that's true. I think about my nephew who shot himself to death. You know, there are thousands and thousands of suicides that are gun-related and alcohol-related, right? Oh, I know. Because I know. it's too... It and guns are a special form of violence that is not available. It's not the same as a knife. It's not the same as a rope. Right. All those things require a lot more ghastly handling and execution before somebody is dead from them. Right. Guns are really fast, and it's like a twitch of your finger. You're gone. After you've had 12 beers, yep. and the whole world is different now. Yep. That's exactly it. That's never discussed. As a culture, we can't talk about suicide. Nope. We never report suicides. Nope. 
the ability to kill a person or an animal. I mean, shooting some helpless animal, they call that a sport. Yeah, I know. It's a sport if the animal can shoot back. I know. Being 200 yards away with a precision scope <laughs> and the end of your rifle against a tree for stability yeah. is not very sportsmanlike. That's a sport? Yeah. Well, yeah, hiding in a blind high up in the tree. You know, it's just, it's insane. And running around in camo, give me a break. Deer cannot see I know. the difference between camouflage and a red coat. I know. Camouflage makes it more dangerous to get shot by another hunter. Yeah. You should never, never wear camouflage when you're hunting. That's insane. The other part that's never discussed is accidental deaths from hunters. Yeah, there's a lot of them. People getting shot to death. Hunters getting shot by other hunters. I read a story of a woman who got shot hanging up laundry in her backyard. And the hunters claimed, oh, we thought it was a white-tailed deer. And they didn't get arrested. Right. Nothing happens to hunters who kill people in this country. In rural areas where the sheriffs, where the, the town law enforcement... They welcome hunters, they're their neighbors or their tourists spending money there. They don't arrest hunters that kill people. Yeah, that's a little, that's, oh, it was an accident. That's a little crazy. That's a little was crazy. It Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney shoots a guy. Does he go to jail? No, it's just a hunting accident. Anyway, in my opinion, we have a responsibility to the Newtown kids and the Parkland kids to be the bridge from the past where there's a mass shooting every day and no one feels safe anywhere in this country, to a future where gun violence is rare and where there is no 18th century militia amendment for gun fetishists to hide behind. Maybe we can be that bridge. Maybe we can. Maybe if we forget about gun control and gun safety and focus on gun elimination. Shall we wrap this up? Okay. Okay, folks... Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please remember us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash The Hub Important Ideas. We continue to be 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. <laughs>